Hey, go at it, podcast episode four. Oh my gosh, we made it! We made it to episode four. The achievement of the year, really, for me. We could three D print ourselves an award. We absolutely could <laughs> and should. Who's going to design it? You. You design all the awards. <laughs> I know. I speaking of which, I think I have. Definitely one award on my plate right now, maybe two. This time of year, it's award season, right? For salespeople, yeah. you have to make them feel good about themselves, give them something that they can put on their desk to collect dusk, dust, dusk, <laughs> dusk. Oh man, we're recording this a lot earlier than we normally do. Yep, it's early in the day. And if you're just joining us, I'm Tate Brown. I'm Tyler Reed. And this is the Go Additive Podcast. If this is your first listen, for whatever reason you clicked on episode four, the idea behind our podcast is to inform people about 3D printing, the industry, maybe some additional insights, uh, and we talk about some just whatever we want to talk about on top of that. But it's brought to you by Go Engineer, and there's no advertisements. Zero advertisements. Is it officially sanctioned? Uh, at this point, nobody knows that we're doing this. We just kind of, we we do have a little studio, which we sneak into whenever someone else isn't on the air. And uh, here we are today. Yeah, so I'm going to spring a topic on you. Wait a second. Let's finish this, this awards stuff. Yeah, well, the awards are fine, but they're dust collectors. And I learned a new word, tchotchke. Do you know this? No. Tchotchke is just something you put on your desk to collect dust. I learned it from the TV show The Nanny from 1993. <laughs> she uses the word in the first episode. And I turned that on last night. I thought I was going to watch it for five minutes. Yeah. I, I ate my dinner very slowly and I finished three episodes. It's hilarious. The Nanny. You know it. It's got Fran Dreschel. With that, she's got that really unique voice. Oh, yeah. She's got the funny laugh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That one. That's it. Such a good show. All right. Yeah. I never saw that show. You might need to watch it, but it has nothing to do with 3D printing. <laughs> As with many of the things we start our episodes off with. Speaking of our episodes, last week we had a bit of a teaser, right? We were saying that we had a big announcement. Yep. To yep. discuss this week. And I'm ready to unveil it. Are you ready? <laughs> Do you need a drum roll? I found a white elephant gift for our gift exchange. That was the teaser. <laughs> That's the teaser. <laughs> so I, you had sent me some of your ideas. What did you end up settling on? Should I tell you? Because you're participating in this white elephant exchange. If you... Yeah. I mean... Okay. I, you probably know what I'm going to do already. So... Probably. First of all, that's not that's not the announcement. The announcement is going to come later. But let's talk. So a little you're going to tease within a tease. Yeah. All right. Yeah. OK. Let's talk a little bit about white elephant gift exchanges. I don't even know really the point of a white elephant gift. They enrage me. <laughs> Why? I'm so mad about participating. I, I'm happy about participating, but I'm also yeah, you, conflicted. You love it. You spent like an hour yesterday whoa, looking, whoa, up, whoa, 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 looking whoa. up stuff whoa, whoa. to get. I know. Here's the thing. They put limits on the price to try to keep the price down. Mm -hmm. at, in this case, it was $10. But it took me a lot longer to find a gift at $10. So if you incorporate the cost of the time, they probably should have just let us do like a, a few hundred dollars. No. <laughs> I... <laughs> I that's the worst because then I would be the person that brings a ten dollar gift and everyone else spent two hundred bucks. Fifteen dollars would have been a good compromise. Ten dollars really limits you to the scope of what you could do. So there were items like Chia Sophia, <laughs> the Chia pet from Sophia uh, on Gold Girls. What is with you and all these old TV shows? I love them. I don't know. I love them. I like them because I can watch them. And I can keep pace with the filming and the cuts and the production of it. I can keep pace with it. And it's more approachable than shows today. 
Okay. So you're just, for those of you listening, Tyler's on this kick right now. He is really into like TV production and video, videography, photography. He's been into photography for, photography for a while, but I mean, yesterday he was sitting there giving me a lecture on Kelvin's and the colors of LED lights and white balance and goodness. Yeah. It was deep. Well, there's always more depth to the topics. <laughs> I give you just the flotsam. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, right. That was already too deep. <laughs> that was already too deep. Here's why they enrage me. And that's because it's white elephants are set up to disappoint, right? I suppose. I, I Right now, I have to look at a web page to even know what the point of a white elephant gift exchange is. Yeah. I, well, go ahead it's, and tell us, tell us what makes you so mad. Okay, so the point of the white elephant gift is not to give someone a quality gift, something that they'll find useful. It's supposed to be amusing at the time of the exchange. And what ends up happening is inevitably you end up with a trinket or something that you sit on your desk and or you put in storage somewhere and you have to hold on to it for years because it's a gift and you've been taught you should appreciate gifts but it's literal junk and it just weighs you down and kind of like one of your trophies yeah <laughs> exactly i get it i understand the <laughs> irony here but my trophies are art so it's yeah, different yeah okay i i get it I try to always get white elephants. My favorite one is a mega mug from the gas station. Yeah. Because <clears throat> whether or not someone's a soda drinker, that may determine its utility, right? It uh -huh. either becomes junk. But who doesn't like an oversized mug? It's Me, hilarious. I would hate it. It's hilarious. I would Even throw it away immediately. No water? No nothing? No. Why? Because those mugs, to me, it, like they they exemplify a lifestyle that I detest. <laughs> that's, that's what makes them so funny. Oh, they're the worst. That's the whole point. They're the worst. Imagine me walking in with like a 114-ounce mug. Like the handle, you don't even know how it holds up the drink. <laughs> you could see Tyler's face right now. He's it's just gross. disgusted. It's so gross. Well, I think it's a funny gift. I like to give white elephant gifts that are a little more, they've got some utility yeah. other than just sitting on your desk. I I went through and I was looking at a lot of different just coffee mugs. And I was trying to find coffee mugs that would be amusing to salespeople or engineers because that's who are going to be participating in this. Mm -hmm. And they were just all so corny. And also the salespeople mugs were all like 50% more expensive. There's probably more salespeople in the world than engineers. It just proves to me that someone out there has figured out that they can sell a mug to a salesperson for 50% higher than they can sell it to an engineer. <laughs> what does that say about the two? I'm not going to uh, opine on that. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to share my opinions. I'm just saying this is a matter of fact. They rip salespeople off and they're, they're successful. So I guess the whole white elephant thing is what ticks you off. And I, you're mad right now. I can tell. Maybe it stems from the last time I participated. What happened? Which, now that I'm remembering it, it was about eight years ago. Take us back. Okay. Why anybody would submit this gift, I don't know. It's just pure arrogance. Did you know who gave it? I do know who gave it. And I cut off all ties with them afterwards because it was such an arrogant gift it was a wallet what's wrong with a wallet a wallet is a personal it's, thing it's utilitarian bam I, another one of, that's a gift i would have given no that's yeah terrible. Think what's about wrong it. with a wallet what's wrong with giving a wallet? when's the last time you changed your wallet a long time ago a long yeah. time ago right yeah it starts to conform to your body <laughs> It fits perfectly with what you typically carry in your wallet. And it's completely arrogant for someone to come in and say, you know what? I think I can choose a wallet that's a better fit for you. And even though you've had that wallet for 20 years. It's not years, for you, though. It's just it could have been for anybody. It just so happens you ended exactly. up with it. Okay. I can choose a wallet that's better for everybody. 
That's even worse. You can re-gift it. It sat in my desk for about six years with the tag still on it. Was it a leather wallet, at least? It was made out of parachute material. Mm. All right. It was like garbage. I'm all about those leather wallets. Mine's a leather wallet. Had it for years. Yeah. I've had my wallet for a long, long time. So it was a bad wallet. Even if it was the world's best wallet, I would not have used it. You'd still be just as mad if it was a leather wallet. A nice leather wallet that's nice and thin. Yeah. It's going to hold your I should debit my, card. I should choose my wallet. I don't want someone to choose Oh my, my gosh. Well, I just hate gift giving in general. I hate getting gifts, actually. You hate receiving gifts? I hate it. This whole time of year i i like the uh the theatrics of it all you know i we we talked about i put lights up on my house um i put up a christmas tree in my house you know the standard old stuff but i hate the gift exchanges i like even this this is making you mad because you just don't like the idea of white elephant gifts and i know there's a deeper reason to it (laughs) but for me i just hate like the fact that you're doing it now, I feel pressured. I have to, I have to be involved. You in don't this. have to be involved. But I, but you see what I'm saying though. It's full of like these little pressures. Yeah. And so this sure. whole time of year is just. And for those of you listening, I don't have a, a a wife or significant other. I don't have kids. You know, I don't have these people that I'm like I have to buy for. I know one person who listened. If they listen to this, they might object to that statement. Well, we're not going to talk about it, (laughs) but the point being, it's full of pressures that don't necessarily have to be there. And so when I get a gift, I immediately am like, how much did that cost? That's what I'm thinking in my brain. I'm like, what's the dollar amount attached to this? Because sure, some gifts are super thoughtful and it's like, oh, that means a lot because it's really thoughtful. Pressure again. Yeah. Because now it's like, now I have to give them a thoughtful gift. And I'm just not thoughtful. So so then I really have to take some time and think about maybe I'm just pointing out that I'm so selfish. Anyway, I don't like getting gifts because it usually means you have to yeah. give a gift. I enjoy giving gifts and I've. They're full the, of expectations. That's true. Over the fa- past few years, I've tried to give experiences instead of gifts and it's backfired. because scheduling these experiences proves impossible you know like this year i tried to give my parents last last christmas i gave them a few nights stay at a lodge in the uh, tetons nice it was nice until everything shut down and now technically i've i gave my parents no gift last year because they could never use it that happened to me actually yeah i got a massage gift card that I never got to use. And then the place went out of business. (laughs) Oh, terrible. So the the money got spent on something that never gets to get used. That's why they love to sell gift cards, by the way. It's insurance. Well, you get instant money without... Having to deliver. Without delivering, right? And a significant percentage of gift cards go uncovered. Did you know that? I didn't. It's true. Do you account for that? If you're an accountant for a big company are you accounting for the lost gift cards oh, probably that seems like bad business seems like great business no but you'd have to you'd have to account for it at some point because you have to assume for every gift card you sell yeah that dollar amount will be exchanged for a service or good in the future numbers get fuzzy but you just count on you know 10 percent of those never being redeemed that's wild pretty wild huh oh all right anyway yeah, i am looking forward to it whoever listens to this and if I end up with your gift on Friday, I'm going to love it. And I promise I won't throw it away immediately. I know for sure if you get mine, you're going to be stoked. I hope so. I ended up getting a Bob Ross talking bobblehead. Oh, that's, that's, that's what you what got? I'm, that's what okay. I'm submitting. I'm getting the alien glasses Oh, I love that those. are like six bucks on Amazon. Oh, those are so good. So I'm not even taking it to the full $10 limit. Yeah, you could have <laughs> almost fit two pairs. in there. <laughs> well... Nobody's getting to. Anyway, now that we've basically wasted all of your time with 
telling everyone how much of curmudgeons we are. Yeah. Let's move into this teaser. Okay, the teaser. Yeah, I'm tired of waiting. So the announcement came yesterday, and that is we at Go Engineer have a new metal additive partner in a company called Velo 3D. Velo 3D was founded in, I think, 2014, and they released their first product, a machine called the Sapphire, in 2018. They spent their first four years in development of next-generation DMLS technology, so metal powder bed fusion technology, and software, pre-processing software called Flow, quality assurance software called Assure, and sculpting print parameters. That's the quick overview. I've been around long enough to have a fair amount of experience with metal additive, designing parts for metal additive, having them printed, post-processing those parts, with a variety of different technologies. Metal additive for you is a, it's a new frontier, right? Yeah, and when I first came here, um, I was familiarized with a certain technology and I thought, okay, this is kind of cool, but it had some, oh, I don't know, just in seeing the whole process. So the technology that we had in our portfolio at that time was called BMD, bound metal deposition. Yep. And this is an FDM-like metal technology that uses a feedstock that is primarily metal powder combined with polymer binders. And it's extruded just like FDM. And then those binders are removed somehow, various ways, after printing. And typically the final step in this BMD technology is a full sintering of the entire part, a bulk sintering process. And just like any other 3D printing technology, there are advantages, there are disadvantages, there are aspects of the process that you have to be aware of and design around. You know, design for additive manufacturing is relatively free compared to conventional DFM rules, but there are there are rules and some rules are more stringent than others and some technologies are more stringent than others. How much carryover for those of us who have, you know, we're familiar with DFAM, um, with thermoplastics or resin-based polymers, how do we transfer our knowledge to design for metal additive? Is there much carryover? Or would you say this is a whole new frontier? We've got to relearn and reprogram our brains to work with it. Well, some of it does carry over. I would say that... The 10,000 foot concepts such as light weighting, part consolidation, interior structures, the presence of processing in some level, those still apply, but the difference is in the details. Okay. So, and, and when we say metal additive, we really have to narrow the scope down to particular technologies because just like on plastic side you're going to have different abilities depending on your technology right we can we can do optimization in the interior of fdm parts Mm -hmm. we cannot do that for polyjet parts for example and so discussion of light weighting for polyjet versus fdm is a completely separate discussion for each technology And the same is true for metals, right? The most tried and true technology is powder bed fusion. So either DMLS or EBM, um, EBM being electron beam melting, DMLS being direct metal laser sintering. To the casual viewer, the two processes are going to look essentially the same. Uh, You have a beam of energy that's hitting a very thin layer of powdered metal alloy. And it is heating it up to the point where those granules of material are consolidating, connecting to each other, and they just go through and trace the trace the part. So there are no additives. There's no polymers. There's no there's no 
Yeah. Additional. You're it's ro- just metal on metal. It's it, like yeah, fusion you, welding. Your raw stock is your alloy. Okay, so there are you know a variety of different alloys that are used in these uh, processes today. You know, they tend to be more exotic materials because historically the price of this technology has put it in a realm of being used for very high value parts, which means that you're using high value materials. And you're also taking advantage of the fact that much less post-processing to create, say, precision surfaces is required. And so there is an incentive to use these exotic materials that would typically be very difficult to work with, either because they work hard in or they're gummy or whatever, things like different inconel materials, um, alloys. They take special, they take specialists to know how to weld them, to machine them. Right. It's just not a material everyone's familiar with. Right. So if you can knock out a lot of that post-processing through the printing process, then you have a a huge incentive to print in these materials. So the raw stock is those materials. Um, Now, there are other metal additive technologies that are gaining some momentum, you know, binder jetting being one of those where, again, you have a raw metal stock that's powderized. Some binding element is introduced, perhaps through something like a printhead. And then those parts are sintered later on, a bulk sintering process. Explain what the sintering process does um, to this part. Okay. We know that you've got to print these parts oversized because as they sinter, they burn those additives out, it shrinks. So can you explain that a little bit more? Sure. So something like binder jetting or BMD or the, the FDM type metal additive technology, they're introducing binders to keep those metal powders in shape in the production of what would be called either a green part or a brown part, depending on the technology that you're using, the process that you're using. Uh, But whether it's a green or a brown part, the idea is that it's it's not a finished part. And so you would put it in a sintering furnace and raise the temperature of that furnace to somewhere near the melting point of that metal. So imagine a a shape that's made of marbles and you're using like a, I don't know, hot glue to keep those marbles together, right? The hot glue is taking up some space. As we heat that up, if we heat it up to to the point where the hot glue is starting to melt, then it's starting to melt but you have to heat it up to the point where, in this case, the glass is melting. This is a bad example, but <laughs> perhaps we're using plastic marbles. Okay? They could be ball bearings. Something like that. But you're heating it up to the point where the binder melts away. It gets carried off with gas. And the pellets or the balls, whatever we're talking about, they're also reaching melt temperature and they're touching each other. So as they get hot enough, if they're touching each other, they will form just like two water droplets you put them side by side if they touch surface tension brings them together right yep and the space that they're occupying now is as one unit less than two units and so the part is shrinking down to size how much it shrinks depends on how much binder is present and everything's shrinking together you're getting you know fairly good adhesion between layers and the part is relatively isotropic. Uh, the, the biggest challenge here is that shrinkage, right? That is going to limit some of the geometries that you can pursue, uh, for example. And it can take a, a bit of work to iterate on that part to determine how it might shrink, right? There's a lot of effort going into simulating uh, this shrinkage and then the hope is that you could compensate for it. That gets fairly messy because... Are you iterating the geometry of the part or are you iterating your process? uh, It could be both. So these parts, as they're reaching these high temperatures and they're becoming softer and they're changing shape, they need to be supported uh, during that process. 
So how you support those can affect how they change shape, right? You can imagine if it wants to curl and you're resisting that, then you might create some stresses in the part to the point where perhaps they crack, right? Or they break. If you allow it to move too much, then perhaps you've distorted the part. So maybe it's intact, but it's distorted. So you're trying to determine how to best orient this in the furnace, how to best support it for both the print process and the sintering process. And then if you're trying to compensate for that ahead of time, you may be iterating the actual shape of the part, which gets a little bit dicey because you have a, a CAD drawing of your production part and it's nominal size, nominal shape. But if you're changing that design in anticipation of twist or warp or curl in the print process, you now have two versions of that CAD file floating around. Right. Right. And when you're going into highly regulated uh, industries, you know, aerospace in particular, that gets really hairy. So I actually haven't seen binder jetting or similar technologies enter those highly regulated spaces yet. So, but we have seen that with powder bed fusion machines. Powder bed fusion machines are being used worldwide by aerospace, automotive, oil and gas companies to produce very high value parts that come out of the machine with some internal stresses, but much closer to the end shape, uh, much more precise. Something like that you would you know, perhaps get out of a casting, for example. Okay. And you do typically go through some post-processing steps to relieve those internal stresses. You perhaps go through a post-processing step called hipping or hot isostatic pressing to try to reduce the percent uh, porosity in the part. Because with high-value parts, they're typically highly optimized. They are critical parts. And they're analyzed to the gills. Mm -hmm. We are still, as an industry, learning the ins and outs of things like failure modes for metal additive parts. How do we predict, say, the fatigue life of a metal additive part? And how do we improve something like that? Or how do we uh, reduce the stress corrosion cracking of an oil and gas metal additive part? Lots of material research going into powder bed fusion metal added. The I went to a material science conference probably four or five years ago now. And it was the first time that this conference had a full additive uh, series. They had something like a hundred plus presentations. And these were primarily university researchers, some researchers from national labs, and government uh, researchers. 98% of those presenters were talking about powder bed fusion processes and powder bed fusion materials. Lots of research. It's powder bed fusion is the most mature metal additive technology. Now with Velo, we, we have a partner that's coming in at the very high end of what's possible. So with Velo, we have some unique differences on the hardware and the software side. Velo is a Silicon Valley company that's in their blood is software optimization. And with the next generation of machines, there is this synergy between the software and the hardware. Historically, when we had a customer obtain a metal additive machine, we would visit them and maybe six months or a year later, we visit them. We're visiting them for other things because we weren't supporting these machines. But I would be asking them, you know, how's it working for you? Are you learning it? And there was always a learning curve, you know, six months, 12 months to really get your head around how to use it. Part of that is you know, the creation of support structures, not very optimated, automated in most cases. Support structures are critical in powder bed fusion machines. Support is probably the wrong word, really. You're, you're pinning the parts down to the build tray. You are anchoring them because two bad things can happen when parts start to curl. One, they just, they start to distort and you have a bad part. But two, 
if they come up above that current print level, what's called the recoder can contact the part and that ruins your part. It also requires maintenance on the machine. Velo has what's called a non-contact recoder. So there's actually a gap, some airspace between the printed layer and the recoder. So something like that is less of an issue, uh, less of a risk, which means you can be, you have more leeway in your design because there are certain say unsupported features that would tend to curl up that would be a problem. And I lost my, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> Where well, were you going with that? Support. How, oh, yeah, the support. how the support structures are built. So with Velo's software, they call it Flow, they've done a ton of work into automating a lot of the support structure um, and also giving users some, there is some user interaction, but the software reads in the file and analyzes it and it understands, say, like part thickness, cross-sectional thickness in certain areas. It understands surface requirements and it understands overhangs. So with existing technologies, let's call them first-gen DMLS or SLM machines, you're generally following a rule of support structures are going to exist under surfaces that are 45 degrees from horizontal. Okay, so so you, this has some self-supporting properties. It, it is, in even first-gen machines are self-supporting down to about 45%. That would be the general rule. Now with some fine tuning and a lot of expertise and iteration, you can bring that support uh, down to all the way down to maybe 10 degrees. But at that point, we're talking about, this is a showpiece part. This is not your typical part that you're doing day in, day out, or on a, like a job shop type scenario where you're doing onesie twosies and they're not iterated. That's not the typical user experience. So typical user experience is about 45 degrees downward in that ballpark. With Velo and their second gen hardware and software, the typical user experience is going to be support structures only up to you know that 10 degree range, somewhere in that ballpark. So it really opens up the door to even more elaborate designs, more design freedom in the typical use case. So on Velo's website, it it says through its next generation Sapphire, um, with that solution, they can achieve support-free production. So explain support-free okay. if we're talking about how it's supported still. Yeah. So support-free is, it's a trademark term by the way, and it's used, you know, you go on LinkedIn and you search hashtag support free, you're going to find some posts from other companies. It's, it's like the holy grail of metal additive technology. Very difficult to do. Velo can do it in a broader use case than other vendors. Imagine something like a bottle rocket, okay? Picturing a bottle rocket, and you have a nose cone on that bottle rocket. Mm -hmm. You turn it upside down and you you're, say you're building this bottle rocket nose cone. It's upside down in the build tray. So you're starting with that point source and you are building up from there. You could print that free floating in the powder bed. That's, I, my understanding is that that's, that's fairly unique to Velo. You could print that self-supporting. It could be nested. So you could have one, coming into the next, into the next. And with Velo's one meter tall machine, you could print quite a few of those nested together, zero support material, totally possible. If a print is originating from a point source, there is a possibility that you could print it free floating and have no support. That is not the typical scenario. So the typical scenario is that there's still going to be some support, if no other spot than to just begin the print and attach it to that build. But the idea of support free is in, from the way, from where I sit, less support. Gotcha. Which less support really results in dramatic cost savings. I've been reading a lot of uh, Tim Simpson's writings. Tim Simpson is a professor at Penn State. I met him a few years ago. 
And he wrote an article on evaluating cost in metal additive and, and comparing like multi-laser machines against high-powered laser machines, et cetera, et cetera. And how do you design costs out of the parts? And he came, he came up with a figure of if you design for additive and you have a system that accommodates that design, the savings could be three to four X, any savings you might be able to realize on say material price. Does that make sense? Sure. I, at this point, I want to clarify if we can kind of the difference here okay. between metal additive and things that other people are familiar with, you know, our customers, for example, example, and many people just hobbyists familiar with FDM. And when we go to visit a lot of customers, like a hot button topic is always, Hey, you guys have metal additive, like what metal capability is out there? And I think people casually hear or see things about it, uh, in the news or, you know, articles in popular mechanics or, or, or whatever, yeah. you see all these, these cool metal additive widgets and people associate them with the knowledge they already have about additive manufacturing. And it's really not the same. And so where you print a thermoplastic part in one shot and generally it comes out pretty good. The tolerances are tight. You know, there's not a ton of shrinkage or warpage. We've figured out ways to not do that. Metal additive You've mentioned iterating a few times, uh, regardless of the technology, iteration has to be accounted for in these high value parts. It's different than printing a doorstop, you know, at, because right. you don't want to have to send somebody to the box store to go pick up a doorstop. Uh, you're not, you're printing rocket parts, you're printing aerospace parts, race car parts, uh, you're going to have to usually print more than once in metal. Would you say that's true? I, I would say that's true to a degree as a broad statement. Certain technologies you are iterating because of the, the process is less predictable. The process, the manufacturing process. With a high value part, you might be iterating for the application. Right. Those are two different things. Um, now, right. There is more user input on the metal side, 100 percent. And if we're comparing a, a very skilled metal technician versus a very skilled polymer technician or operator, it's probably going to be similar uh, in, the, in the success rate on the first try. I, I would think that on the metal side, particularly with software like flow where a lot more of it is automated or the software is analyzing the part and feeding you good information to base some of your uh, decisions on your success rate is going to be fairly high so the with, with something like powder bed fusion okay yeah so the idea or the value add with a company like velo with a mature process and software that's better we hope with these automations, anytime you automate something, it, it must mean that you know something on the back end, right? right? Like you're, you, you are predicting behavior. And so what you're, it, it, what, from what I'm gathering with Velo, you're getting the whole package from hardware to software. It was designed top to bottom um, from this one company and you're buying that solution and you're buying the automation aspect uh you're buying the know-how the ip in a way i, I know you're kind of yeah, always yeah, yeah. buying the ip but you're buying the fact that you may not have to iterate as much which if you're not familiar with metal additive you probably don't know that because bringing it back to like what i said before right. you're associating it with what you do know right about additive metal's not the same it's a different animal everyone wants metal additive that's as easy as plastic. And from where I sit, that doesn't exist today. So lots of research going in in that direction, but we're not there yet today. You're totally right with, uh, to use a, a Silicon Valley term, with a full stack 
solution. You are buying the user experience, right? You are buying a leap forward so that when you bring the machine, it's fully running and operable within, you know, days into weeks rather than weeks into months. You know, how often have, have we visited a company and they spent a lot of money on technology that's a tchotchke, right? <laughs> yeah. It's just yeah. collecting dust Yeah, because they don't have an operator for it or they don't have even an understanding of how they should be using it or why they should be using it. I would say this is different in the sense that, and maybe not, maybe I'll be proven wrong, but ending up with and $80,000 tchotchke, you know, mm -hmm. for it's all relative, right? 80,000 to one company is 100%. gobs and gobs of money to another company. It's like, okay, we can afford to take shots on technologies that could potentially help us right. versus another one. It's like someone might lose their job. Heads might roll because this person made this large purchase and it didn't end up helping us. Right. It didn't give us an ROI. Right. Um, with this, it's a significantly larger cost. I, I feel like you do probably more due diligence as the cost goes up. You figure Absolutely. out, can can we make this work? Uh, having an operator for this, do you think that you would need a more specialized operator? So this isn't, this isn't something you buy yes. and implement and say, you all can run this, right. point, pointing to your engineering group. Like this is more of a, a technology that it's like, no, Maybe you hire someone specifically on salary that runs that machine and, and does that only. They're a specialist or you at least assign uh, a single or two operators to this machine. Yeah, the people who are operating this system are by definition specialists because they are operating a system that is completely unique in the entire world, right? There's no other system like this. There's no other system that's capable of creating these parts that this system is creating. So by definition, you're a specialist. And to think that you could operate at that level without any sort of special knowledge, like, I would hope is that. So as much as the software is contributing that's the goal of this podcast, Tyler. <laughs> yeah. As as much as the software is contributing you are coming into it, hopefully with some knowledge of metal additive manufacturing in general. And then as you use the system, you're going to develop a specialized understanding of metal additive um, operation and also design, right? These parts coming off a system like the, the Sapphire machine are designed for the Sapphire machine. If, if they aren't, you probably sh should not be manufacturing them on the Sapphire machine. So there are, so I guess one of the largest selling points of additive technology is you can manufacture the unmanufacturable. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we've heard that probably too many times. Too many times. And you're saying with this, it's, you kind of have to approach it like a five axis CNC or something that it's like, we can do almost anything, but we have limitations or yeah. you need to know uh, where you're going to run into issues with it, wh where it could produce some difficulty and just knowing a little more about it helps the engineers design parts that can be yeah. produced on it. People who are attracted to this system have ideas right now that are unachievable, right? These are the people who are going to be just salivating over this system because they have these designs that in theory would work if you could make them. You know, I'm, I'm excited about this system proliferating through the industry because it's going to fundamentally change the discussion around metal additive. Remember when Travis Pastrana did the first backflip? Double backflip. Yeah. Double backflip. So I do. You remember that, right? Like it's, it was death defying. It was like, <laughs> it was a big deal. Nobody thought it was possible. Nobody thought it was possible. So when you're talking about tricks that we're going to be doing, it would never even enter the discussion because everyone just knew that's not possible. And anything associated with that is not possible. And then he did it. And 
as soon as the human brain sees something like that, it learns that's possible. And it totally shifts the mindset of everyone who was a competitor in that industry, right? Everyone who was a viewer, whatever. It totally shifted the mindset of what's possible versus what's impossible. And Velo, to me, is going to have a similar effect. As soon as people start seeing what is possible on these systems by the average user, it's going to fundamentally change how they view metal additive as an option. I hope so. And, and I, I, I love the analogy, obviously, because I like extreme sports. And just to prove your point even one degree further, a nine-year-old, I just saw this went viral recently. No did, way. A double backflip on a BMX bike. Oh, I actually saw that. Yeah. Yeah. Nine years old. Right. Nine years old. I have I have a nephew that's 10 mm -hmm. and I'm sitting here, even a 10 year old, trying to imagine him on a BMX bike doing right. a, a single backflip. Right. Or any technical trick. Not it's, even. It's just a real, it's a reality about the human brain. Yep. You know, the most common example of this uh, this experiment is the four-minute mile, right? You ran track. Yep. You understand the story about the four-minute mile. No one could break the threshold of the four-minute mile. And then it was done. I can't remember the name of the person who did it, even though I've read it probably a dozen different times. As soon as that happened, within the next year or two, many other people did it. PEDs. No, it's not PEDs. <laughs> Just kidding. It's not PEDs. That's what Lance said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is what Lance said. And sure enough, he had blood bags. Oh yeah, in, inside the <laughs> you know the trim compartments of uh, of his van. Yeah, but that's a whole other story. It, it, it's true. I mean, here's a, another example. Not to beat this to death, but we had this. I worked for a fastener company many years ago. And there was this brand that we sold that they specialized in serrated fasteners, serrated nuts, uh, flange nuts, and, and different types of fasteners that didn't require uh, thread lockers. They, they stood up to vibratory loads. They were really cool. Well, one of the show pieces that they would hand out was like this little, it was like a bottle cap opener with a stud welded on it. And then they had one of their uh, flange nuts with, with wings on it so that you could spin it on by mm -hmm. hand and then try to un undo it. And you could just barely tighten it on and it was so hard to take off. Anyway, we would have that in the store all the time and it, it was kind of a tough guy thing. Like, oh yeah. dude, can you, uh, can, you un can you undo this bolt by hand yeah. or undo this nut by hand? And guys would come and, you know, tough guys that yeah. were coming in. We're talking hardened blue collar professionals. Okay. Mechanic strength. Absolutely. Sausage <laughs> fingers, just calloused. <laughs> and they're sitting there, you know, when someone just, they're shaking because yeah. they're trying so hard. But me having done it a million times, I just knew in my brain not to like let, let it get stuck. And here I was, you know, sitting behind a desk with my little hands and I could grab that thing after they sat there and shook with it and I could I could get it to undo. It wasn't easy, but I just had to tell myself, go to the point where you think you can't and just yeah. do it. And I could undo it. And these guys would always just be amazed, you know. But anyway, the point was, if you can get past that mental blockage, even if it's widely accepted, it doesn't make it true. You right. know, even these tough, I know these tough guys could have undid it. Had they not thought this is really stuck, this is really stuck on there. And then they give up. Yeah. Um, hopefully metal additive moves towards getting as easy as plastic. 2021 is going to be a year of education, you know, on our part and on the markets part, we have to learn more about these systems. Hopefully we will be instrumental in spreading the adoption of these next-gen systems. Velo thinks we will be. Yes, they do. We're the, we're the exclusive partner. That's Nobody true. else is doing it. That's true. That so, excites me. Yeah. That, that really excites me. And I don't know. We'll see. There's, there's a lot to come. My goal, our goal over this next year, is to 
share our experiences of learning how to really use metal additive for manufacturing, for prototyping. Now, what does it mean to bring a system in-house? What do you have to account for? Okay. Yeah. What does it mean to design for these systems? What does it mean to operate the systems? What does post-processing look like in reality? Start to finish, end to end, you know, cradle to grave. What's the experiences of a metal additive manufacturing engineer? That's really tough to find online right now. Right. Really That's why it's so it. important that we do this. Yeah. And document it, learn it for ourselves, but also provide a platform for other people to learn about metal additive. Yep. Because like you're saying, you can't find, you can find little nuggets here and there, right. but even piecing them together, it doesn't give you an end-to-end -end total idea because you're like, well, this guy's working with this software and this type of technology and the next video I have or the next blurb I have is from something totally different. So that's the goal. And when we look back a year from now and we're on episode 60 <laughs> or 56 or what have you, uh, hopefully we could look back and say we accomplished that along with all of the other new polymer technologies that we were bringing on our plates uh, in 2021. Is that another teaser? It could be. We talked about one of them last week. Yeah. Yeah. But there's that's more. That's true. We and got more. <laughs> so we have a ton to learn even between what we've announced. Yeah. There could be more in the future. I'm not privileged with that information. Tyler may be holding back. We I don't could know. be making things up entirely. <laughs> we'll see. Well, cool. I think that's a pretty good episode. We did get a little bit deep there, but I hope, you know, the main takeaway is we have this great new partner in Metal Additive. We're very excited about. We we have experience with Metal Additive. We we know that we like Velo's system. We know right. what it's going to be like, and we're excited to kind of share that with you moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. If you have topics that you would want us to touch on, you know, specifically with metal additive, but more broadly, shoot us an email, right? T Your email. Your email. T-Reed. T-R-E-I-D at goengineer.com. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me pretty much nowhere else. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you, and that's a good opportunity for us also to direct some traffic to our, our website. We yeah. do have a good website. Um, if you're looking for more information on the things we talk about, even as just a lead to get there, uh, go to goengineer.com. And that's as close to an advertisement as we'll ever have. Probably. 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 All right. Take care. See you next week. Bye-bye.